0: You're listening to an episode of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the podcast dedicated to honest conversations with educators about what they do and, more importantly, who they are. I'm your host, John LeMay, and I'm here to highlight the complex and rich lives led by teachers with diverse interests, identities, and stories. Hi there. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, and thank you for joining me. I'm super excited for you to hear my conversation with Courtney Jackson. Courtney is a humanities teacher, fresh off receiving her master's in education from Harvard, and she's about to start a new position at the Loomis Chafee School, where she will teach English, coach soccer and basketball, and serve as a residential faculty member. We talk about what informed Courtney's decision to take a break from teaching and attend two back to back grad school programs. We unpack Courtney's belief in the importance of saying no every now and then in order to ensure that you're not spreading yourself too thin as you serve your students and your school's community. And Courtney shares some insights on how educators can best equip themselves to empower and attend to the needs of LGBTQ students. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a rating and a review on either iTunes or the Apple podcast app and tell us what you're enjoying about the podcast. Additionally, we're always looking to interview a wide range of educators. So if you know of someone who would be an interesting guest, please email us at welcome to the teachers lounge at gmail.com. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Courtney. Hey Courtney, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me.
1: Hi John, thanks for having me.
0: So, what I'd like you to do to begin is go back to the first day of school. By that, I mean, go back to your first day of full-time teaching, however you can interpret that. Uh, I'm curious in what you remember, how you fell, just kind of like big takeaways from that day for you.
1: I think my first day of teaching full-time was probably a little different from most people's because I wasn't, uh, I didn't have a classroom to myself. I was a teaching fellow. Um, at a boarding school in New England. And um, I was placed with a with a mentor teacher. And so my first day was actually in class uh, with him and his students. Um, and uh, there actually weren't enough seats for me. So I was sitting on the windowsill <laughs> and kind of was a, a fly on the wall, as it were. Um, and I really had not, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, I had done the advanced studies program, which is how I know you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what made me want to be a teacher. Um, so I went back to my last year of college knowing that I wanted to get into education, but figured I needed to to do some learning about it first. So I applied for a teaching fellowship so I could have the opportunity to work with mentor teachers, um, and kind of ease in and, uh, cause I hadn't taken any education classes. Um, so on the first day I kind of I was nervous and but i also didn't have the pressure of needing to be the the person you know commanding the the whole room and planning and right um so then as the year went on and and i was a teaching fellow for two years um i definitely got more responsibility as time went on but at the beginning i I remember being anxious and excited but uh not much else
0: (laughs) right right you said that you um I forget the exact phrase, but that you you didn't know what you were getting into. Was there a moment in that first day or in those first few days of teaching where you it kind of became clear that like you didn't know what you were doing or you didn't know what you had gotten yourself into? Like, was there a moment where that became like pretty clear to you?
1: Um, I think I had... Academic experience um, as a writing fellow in college that prepared me for a lot of what I would end up doing in the classroom. But I think what I wasn't necessarily sure about, um, and then as time went on, I was like, oh, this is really the deal, is just basically the the triple threat model of being in the classroom, but then also coaching. I coached three seasons and was um with the JV soccer team my first my first year and coming off of my own collegiate experience, going from a D1 soccer program to a high school JV girls soccer program was was pretty um was a, it was a huge difference for me and and uh, yeah. it was really, really difficult. Um and I remember being really frustrated with the players. And then about halfway through the season I had this moment of like the people on this team, like the these these students, these players will never feel about soccer the way that I do. And that's okay. And I'm as their coach, I need to help them have the best experience that that they can have and I sort of was able to flip from being in the player mentality to being in the coach mentality and I think that that moment actually through soccer helped me think more about teaching in the classroom and being and shifting from a person engaging in conversations to the person facilitating them and and from someone you know really being in more of the student role to being the teacher and like what that meant in terms of planning and guiding and, and facilitating, um, and kind of taking a step back and really thinking about what my students needed and that that would guide what I did rather than here's what I want to do and making my students kind of fit that. Yeah. Um, and then, and then there was the dorm, the dorm piece, um, and, you know, navigating, establishing relationships with students that were meaningful while also towing a line professionally in terms of boundaries. Like I was 23 and much closer in age to all the students than to most of my colleagues. And so, um, socially, you know, navigating my first year out of college, like that was interesting too. Um, so it was, it was all of those things. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think the, the soccer piece really helped frame the way that I needed to approach teaching in all of those arenas where, um, it wasn't about me. It was about how can I help all of these people, um, be the best selves that they can be.
0: Yeah. That really resonates with me because I also started teaching without any like actual training in the classroom. Like I wasn't an education major. I never took any education classes, which I've talked about a little bit on the, on the podcast. And, um, well, I think when you find yourself in that in that situation, you need to rely on a lot of like your experiences and your instincts and I think a lot of those instincts are what you've developed from your time as a student or in your case as an athlete as well or you know any number of things. But I I'm, I'm struck by what you said about like how like you figured out that they were not going to care about soccer as much as you did or in the exact same way, so you just had to kind of like meet them where they were and that really resonates with me in my experience like in the classroom. Like I was a really like I was a good student and I really loved literature and I loved talking about all things English and writing and and stuff like that. And I definitely had a similar moment in my first year of teaching where I was like, oh, these kids aren't going to care about English or literature the way that I did or even the way that my kids at the advanced studies program where we met um, Mm -hmm. did. So there is kind of like that adjustment that I think everyone needs to go through, but I think is also very specific for people who got into education through hyper-specific programs like the ASP or were really good students and that shapes like what their expectations of what other students would be like or the students mm-hmm. they would have in class would be like, but it's a it's a tough adjustment.
1: Oh, it definitely is, but it's a worthwhile one.
0: Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think it having that moment where you realize like that, oh, all of my expectations totally need to go out the window. It's very humbling, but it also kind of starts you off in a situation where you – you're always learning as an educator and you just mm-hmm. know that you constantly need to be adjusting to each new situation. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you realize that you wanted to be a teacher?
1: So I, I realized I wanted to be a teacher about two weeks into the ASP um, when I was an intern. So senior year of, of college, I um, was studying history and philosophy playing soccer and, uh, was an admissions fellow. So, um, I went to Lehigh university in Pennsylvania Mm -hmm. and about 15 seniors get selected every year to run prospective student interviews and help with admissions to info sessions and, and things like that. And I was an admissions fellow. Um, and in that role, I got to talk to hundreds of high school students about their college search process, what they did over the summer, what they were interested in studying. Um, And then I was also co-chair of a mentoring organization in the athletic department. Um, And we basically helped uh, do all kinds of things uh, for athletes from a peer-to-peer kind of support standpoint. So we helped freshmen navigate registering for classes. Um, We had members of each team get trained in um, knowing what services were available to athletes on campus, like counseling, mental health services, um, academic support, things like that. And so... um, I loved working with athletes who did resume workshops, um, and I loved working with with my peers to help them and and basically empower them to do, you know, to be better students, better athletes, better members of of the college. Mm-hmm. So when I really thought about what I enjoyed doing in college, I thought back to my own boarding school experience and realized that a lot of my teachers and coaches did all those things. They went to class, they had sports in the afternoon. And then they mentored students um, just around campus and after hours in the dorm and through the advising system. So I really wanted to love getting up and going to work every day. Um, I didn't want to just you know make buckets of money but hate what I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a lot of friends going into investment banking and things like that. And I knew that that was not for me. I minored in business and uh, had a couple internships that were more business-oriented and, and didn't love them. Um, so I was looking for something else. And my sister's a music teacher. She's three years older than me. And I had seen her teach and was really, um, taken with that and impressed by that and saw how much she believed in what she was doing. Um, and I actually was living with, uh, people who were in the education program at Lehigh. Um, and they were always so excited to go do their student teaching and things like that. And when I thought about, ways in which I could continue doing what I was doing in college just and get paid for it. Uh, being a boarding school teacher kind of stuck out. Um, but I didn't know if it was really going to be for me. It's a lifestyle. It's a, it's, um, kind of when school's in session, you're on and it, it can be really hard and demanding. Um, and so I wanted to sort of try it out and see if I liked it, but I didn't know that that was an option. And then my roommate at the time, uh, her friend came to visit, um, for her birthday and, uh, we were talking about what we were going to do after graduation, and um, I mentioned all those things, and she goes, oh, you should be an intern. I was like, what do you mean? She said, I'm, I'm from New Hampshire, and I did this really cool summer program when I was in high school, and there were college kids who helped teach, ran athletics in the afternoon, and were in the dorm, and you should do that and see if you like it. I was like, wow, that sounds perfect. <laughs> so I Googled it and applied and drove up to New Hampshire. I'd never been to New Hampshire before. Oh, wow. I, I drove up that summer, so... <laughs> wow. and 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 two weeks in i was obsessed with with the whole thing yeah. um just how incredible the teaching was uh, the classroom experience getting to know kids outside of the classroom um having the sort of close knit community atmosphere um and just having relationships really fuel everything that was happening um including the academic program that i was like wow this is this is definitely for me
0: yeah That's awesome. Yeah, it is. I mean, ASP really is like, I mean, I've talked with Sarah Koppelkam, who we know through ASP um, already, Mm -hmm. and I assume that we will have many other ASP folks on the podcast, but it really is like an incredible opportunity to test the waters and see if it's something that you actually could do in like this very high stress, but also like very fun and enjoyable environment. So it sounds like you went into that program and like not long into it, you figured out like that it was something you could see yourself doing like for the rest of your life, essentially.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely the most tiring thing I'd ever done. Yeah, and I think also the most energizing and the most meaningful.
0: Yeah, well, and it really reflects like the larger trajectory of the of the school year. Uh, yeah, and kind of like viewing it as a marathon as opposed to a sprint, but also kind of like a sprinting marathon as well. Exactly. <laughs> what were uh, What were you like as a student in? really at any point um, that makes sense to begin like you think about in terms of middle school high school whatever makes sense for a starting point but I'm curious about what you were like as a student and as a learner um, and kind of how that like shaped who you are as as an educator
1: Mm, that's a good question Um, when I was really little like elementary school I remember um, loving to read like loving going to the library and picking out books. And I remember one of the librarians saying, if you don't like a book, just bring it back and pick a different one. Like reading should be fun. Mm -hmm. And it was, Um, and I also built a lot of things and sort of tinkered. I um, built things with wood and connects and Legos. Like I was always obsessed with building. And then as middle school kind of started to happen and i had uh less time to read for fun because we had more reading to for class and then um i got more serious with soccer and um that took up more of my free time and i ended up kind of building and tinkering faded away and i stopped reading for fun and reading actually became something that i i didn't like mm-hmm. at all like a burden um, yeah, yeah. Because I often some of the books that my teachers asked us to read, I didn't like, and I was never told why we had to read them. And and not only did we have to read them, but then we had to talk about them and then write about them. Right. And so reading kind of got killed for me. Um, and then high school came around, and I knew that I mean, and even before that, I knew grades were really important. My parents never put too much pressure on my sister um, and me about about needing to get a certain kind of grade but we were both self-motivated and I I knew that I wanted to do well Mm -hmm. so I did. Uh, My grades were always good even if I didn't enjoy things Um, but in high school I was very math science. I um, struggled with English and history just because there wasn't necessarily a definite answer Mm -hmm. and I didn't love uh, writing papers and you know making an argument because I felt like I didn't. If I couldn't figure out what my teacher wanted and I can deliver that to them, then um, I didn't know if I would do well, and that made me anxious. Right. Uh, so I tended to gravitate towards math and science. I was good at them. I was able to get an answer that I knew was correct, and so that was very. It gave me a lot of security um, and confidence, and um, I really resisted English and and history and writing. I had no confidence in writing, and so I avoided doing it. Um, I still did what I needed to, to get a grade that I was happy enough with. And then I think in a lot of ways I was sort of a soccer academic robot. Um, I spent a lot of time, I knew I wanted to be a college athlete and spent a lot of time training. I played three sports in high school in addition to club, um, soccer outside of that. And what were
0: the three sports?
1: Uh, soccer, basketball, and track. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So I enjoyed school, but only some of it. And I really wish, sometimes I wish I could do high school over again because I very much went through it with grades and the next step in mind rather than learning for the sake of learning. Um, I will say that I was recommended for AP US history my sophomore year for my junior year. And when I was talking to my advisor about, about course selection for the next year and he, he said, you know, you've been recommended for AP US, like, do you want to take it? And I said, yes, but kind of in an uncertain way. He's Mm -hmm. like, well, why do you want to take it or not? And I said, well, not really. Um, Because the girl I had carpooled with that year would always show up with like highlighter stains in her hair (laughs) because she would have fallen asleep reading her APUS books. And she took a ridiculously challenging academic course load and – I knew that with all of my commitments, and I I was in the orchestra, jazz band, and wind ensemble. I I played the trumpet and like loved music. Mm -hmm. Um, I I was involved in a few clubs and was a tour guide. And I knew that if I overloaded on classes in terms of you know rigor, um, other things would suffer. And I wanted to I didn't want to sacrifice anything. Yeah. Um, And also all the AP tests, you know, you're you're taught for the for the test um, or all the AP classes you're taught you know to the test and I didn't want to learn history that way I knew that regular went for depth not breadth and I wanted that kind of experience academically and when I told him that he was like okay so take regular and I was like but don't I need to take AP for college and he was like no Hmm. and if a college doesn't accept you for you making that kind of decision about your own education then you shouldn't want to go there wow and as a you know 16 year old, um, that was pretty empowering. Yeah. So he basically told me that like I was in control of my own education and that I should be able to do what I want. So I kind of did like in the rest of my time, um, I chose to take music theory instead of doubling up on science or math or, um, and then when I was in college, that definitely continued. I just like took random classes because they sounded interesting and I wanted to explore them and I didn't, I wasn't confined by um the sort of like oh no I have to do this and so that's the path I'm gonna have and that's it yeah um so even though I feel like I I just said that I kind of went through high school unconsciously I, I didn't really but I still didn't like writing I didn't like reading in a lot of ways I guess it was compartmentalized some of the some classes I kind of went through and like checked off the boxes and then other classes, I was able to like really get into them. Yeah. Um. And, I, and then in college, I ended up realizing that with science, I was good at it, but I couldn't think of anything that I wanted to do with it. And that was a weird moment. Um, and then at the same time as I was taking organic chemistry and having that kind of like, what am I doing moment with that, I was also taking intro to philosophy and for whatever reason was now in this in this place personally where I was like super excited by these large open-ended questions that had yeah. no answers. And, you know, that would have made me really anxious in high school. And then for whatever reason in college, I was like, wow, this is hugely important. Um, I right. think part of it had to do with the fact that I knew that once college ended, real life started and there wasn't a clear next step. And I needed to really think right. about like what kind of person... I wanted to be and the kind of impact I wanted to have on the world and on my community and my family and things like that. And um, so I just started thinking a little differently with different goals in mind. And then that kind of led me to a more humanities experience in college and then to ultimately to, to teaching.
0: It's so interesting. It sounds like you say that you moved through high school like as kind of like a robot and like wasn't really conscious of a lot of these things. But it sounds like it sounds like you were in a lot of ways. Like you just kind of wanted your education to have a sense of like intentionality behind it. And you want to like know why you were doing the things you were doing. Um, And it sounds like that kind of stemmed from like your early need to like have a definite answer about something and have like a definite goal that you want to accomplish. But it sounds like there were like those kind of small moments where you realize like that you, you should have a sense of intentionality behind your education. Like you should be taking the history class that will best serve you as opposed to the one that, you know, is going to look best on your college high school transcript or whatever. Do, do you ever share that that story about, like, the, choosing the regular history class of, over the AP U.S. history class, like, in your role as a teacher or, like, an academic advisor?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, I definitely have that conver- I definitely bring it up when I have individual conversations with students, whether they're my advisee or not. Um, yeah. I also gave a chapel talk at my last job um, about... Um, sort of my my own educational journey, and that mm-hmm. story was in it. And my advisor um, was still working at the school, so I oh, went awesome. back to teach to my alma mater. And he was in the audience, and he actually suffers uh, from some memory loss, and so he doesn't he doesn't remember, remember that? that conversation. Right. Um, but I think so often as educators, we have these, and you mentioned instinct before that you just have these conversations based mm-hmm. on uh, what you know of the student and your own experience and what feels right in the moment. Yeah. And you, you know, the next day you kind of forget what you said. Um, and then, yeah. but something like that, like a small conversation that is seemingly insignificant can end up sticking with a student and being so formative, Yeah, which I, which is really cool, but also kind of daunting yes. right? that, <laughs> that it could go the other way where we could yeah. say something offhand and not really think about it. And that could end up having a, a more negative impact on a student. But I think and you mentioned intentionality. I think the more we can aim to be intentional in our interactions with students, even when they're casual, which at a boarding school environment like happens all the time. Yeah. Um, and just to realize like the deep responsibility that we have and the impact that we can have. I think it's yeah. really important.
0: Yeah, it is. is. Um, I'm In talking about you as a student and as a learner, I'm curious about your transition um, Back to being in school, and going to grad school. I know you at this point you have a couple degrees under your under your belt, uh, but I know you're just coming off of, of a grad school program. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm curious about what that experience um, was like. Sort of what informed your decision to pursue a graduate degree and then pursue another one, and kind of take like these breaks from from teaching and then and going back to back to the classroom.
1: Sure. Um... I feel like initially grad school is on my radar just because I was getting older. Mm-hmm. Um, independent schools like being able to advertise that X percentage of their faculty have advanced degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so So originally I was thinking about grad school just because I was over 25 and I'm like, okay, this is going to, it's going to happen and right. so I need to figure out which program is the right one for me because this is something that I'm going to need to start soon. And the uh, Masters of Arts and Liberal Studies program up at, up at Dartmouth, uh, MALS for short, um, that's a really cool interdisciplinary program that a lot of my colleagues at St. Paul's um, had, had, had done.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and even though I wasn't at St. Paul's anymore, I was still really excited about the interdisciplinary approach of that, of that program. I looked into some other interdisciplinary programs because that's really what I wanted, and mm-hmm. the the Dartmouth one just seemed right for a lot of reasons. So I only applied to that program, thinking if I don't get in, I'll just stay at my job and kind of reassess. Um, and I ultimately decided to go back full time because you can you can pursue the mouse program over a series of summers. Mm-hmm. Um, but all, everyone I talked to basically said, if you can financially go back to grad school full time, you should do that. Cause you can really dive in and immerse yourself and establish stronger relationships with, with, uh, you know, your professors and your advisor and, and, and your, your peers or classmates and live in a different place and kind of, you know, it, it's more immersive. So I was able to, to do that. And in terms of what I wanted to study, um, as I thought more about it, I realized that I I was basically the only openly gay faculty member at my last job and um, that meant that any student who wanted to come talk to me or who wanted to talk about gender and sexuality basically came to me to talk about right. it. Um, and I, I originally came out my first year at the school um, just just to my dorm in, after a dorm activity uh, that was about the coming out process and sort of simulated the coming out process and the The dorm had done a really nice job with it, and so then I came out to them afterwards, just in telling them that I was proud of the way that they handled that activity. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and this, treated, this
0: was as it this was as a teacher.
1: Yeah, as a teacher. Okay. Um. So, like a few months into being at back at the high school that I went to, um, you know, I came out very casually to my dorm after that, um, activity, and then think and then thought to myself, okay. I know how the social dynamic at the school works because I was a student here. Uh, I probably won't ever have to come out again because it'll, word will get around and I'd rather have it that way. Um, I didn't feel the need to sort of come out in a grand way in front of the entire school kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did want, I wasn't the place where I wanted students on campus to have someone to come talk to if they needed that. So I wanted to be out and, and be an option. Um, and then, like tons of students did, they and and wow. I was newly into that identity myself, and so I felt like a lot of the conversations that students wanted to have, I wasn't necessarily equipped to guide them through those discussions, or gotcha. how to think about parent dynamics and um, and also the norms of of the school. Like a lot of schools are really um, heteronormative, and so, um, but I didn't know enough to really be able to I didn't feel like I could proactively have conversations with colleagues and with administrators about things at the school that need that maybe could be changed um, right. or or reimagined. So, I was like, okay, I need to learn a lot about gender. I need to learn a lot about sexuality and about how those things play out in society and also in schools and how schools can be sites for change and rethinking norms and empowering young people really are, are big agents of change in these movements anyway, specifically right. around gender and trans students. Um, how can we empower young people to also be change agents in their own schools and then beyond? So first I needed to do some content work. So I went to the Dartmouth program and had a concentration in cultural studies. But really every class that I took um, wove in or decided to focus on gender and sexuality whenever I could. Um, and I wrote my thesis. So that program requires an independent study and a thesis. And both of those, uh, were focused on gender, Mm. um, specifically my, my thesis was around, um, current debates around, uh, trans identity, uh, bathroom access, athletics, um, things like that, medical care. Um, so I was coming to the end of that program and, uh, Katie Cotton, who is another one of our ASP Mm -hmm. friends, um, she had done two years at uh, Boston College getting her master's in history and then was at the Harvard Graduate School of Education the year after. And she was roommates with uh, my girlfriend. And so I came down to Boston a lot from the Hanover area to visit. And every time I saw Katie and said, Katie, what are you up to? Uh, Or or, how was your week? She would tell me about all that she was doing at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And pretty quickly, I was like, wow, (laughs) I I want to be doing that too. Uh, And it sounded like the perfect follow up to the work that I had been doing because I could shift gears from the content to how does this stuff look in schools? Mm -hmm. Um, and to just, you know, in the mouse program, a lot of teachers do that, but over the summer. And so during the regular school year, regular academic year, I was usually the only educator in any of my classes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it was nice to really step away from education in a big way and, you know, culturally and also academically. But then I was feeling, a big pull to go back into education and to be in a space where I was surrounded by educators and, and really thinking about how I was going to be as a teacher, um, after, you know, having these like learning experiences. So I applied to the Harvard program, um, only that one. And I figured if I didn't get in, I'll, I'll teach. I was doing the job search too. And I ended up getting in. So then, um, I wanted to, again, address the heteronormativity and homophobia that also, that often exists in schools. And I was able to do that with a few classes. And then I also wanted to do more work on race and my own like racial identity. And I was able to do that and, you know, take a couple other classes that were kind of interesting to me. Um, And then now I feel much more prepared to go into a school and be um, not just a support for, for students, but also more of a, a change agent, like I said, in terms of being able to help structural things at the school and have certain conversations with colleagues and parents around issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, specifically around LGBTQ issues, um, but also also other things like disability and race. Right. And that's something that I'm really excited about.
0: Sort of taking like a totally intersectional approach, like as an educator and what you're like, the ways in which you're empowering students. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to follow up on something else you said uh, about your time in grad school, but mm-hmm. I think this next question I'm going to ask kind of flows into that. So I'll, I'll, I'll hold off on that for now. But I'm curious about what um, what you think about the ways in which we as teachers and educators fail our students. Like, what does it look like when we fail our students, either on like a macro sense, like kind of like the education system as a whole and or what it looks like when we as individual teachers in individual classrooms um, fail our students or don't always do the best by our students.
1: One thing that I, I spent more time thinking about this past year um, that because of how the Harvard program is, so the Harvard grad school that is is very um, sort of public school focused. I, mm-hmm. was, I, I met like a couple other independent school people So I think in a lot of, and that was part of the reason why I chose that program was because I knew it would expose me to educators of, who are very different from me, um, in terms of the kinds of schools where they're teaching, what they're thinking about, what success means to them, uh, what they find really challenging. Um, and that was, so I learned more about sort of the system, right? Betsy DeVos was a topic of conversation a lot, Mm -hmm. um, and the sort of charter school debate and, um a lot of my classmates were used to zero tolerance schools where discipline is very much at the forefront of what they're thinking about. Um, and a shift towards like restorative justice from zero tolerance and, but like so many vocabulary words and concepts and things that like I had never heard of, um, were surrounding me all the time. And it really made me think a lot about my own, place as an independent school educator, which sort of removes me from a system where all yeah. of these other, I mean, there's t- there's tons going on and there are good things happening, but a lot of things not happening. And, um, we had, uh, the, the last like national teacher of the year, um, come and visit and do a, like Q and A with, with my cohort, which was amazing. And she was wonderful and like really inspiring. And she said that one of her friends, who is a former National Teacher of the Year out of Oklahoma, had a kid with his wife. And then they had to move because they couldn't afford to live in Oklahoma anymore with a child. Right. And so they moved to Texas. And she's like, there's something wrong when like the National Teacher of the Year has yeah. to leave their state because they can't afford to live there anymore. <laughs> right. Um, so thinking a lot about how do we fail our students? So I think the education system and the way that we don't value what teachers do Um, ends up harming students because we point the finger at schools and ask that you know tell them to to solve things that really aren't a flaw of the education system they're a flaw of like economic inequality um racism um things like that food insecurity and if you have you know a a low-income area where a lot of the kids are coming to school hungry they're not going to be able to learn so you can't but often like the teachers in the school system get get blamed and then if you have teachers who are tired and stretched too thin and underpaid they're not going to be able to be their best selves in the classroom yeah um and you see a lot of teachers get burnt out and they leave the the profession right so i think we're failing students because we're not valuing education and we're not addressing structural issues that affect the way kids come to school yeah um and i think individually I think a lot of times we fail our students when we don't listen to them mm-hmm. and we don't empower them to share their voice. Like I, I took a class this past year on, um, on YPAR, on youth participatory action research, and we talked a lot about like n- knowledge production and how knowledge is produced and who, who produces the knowledge or what knowledge counts um, in society. And often young people, their voices aren't listened to. Um, We don't think about them as having knowledge because they're young Um, and knowledge is defined as something that you get in like college and kind of from scholarly journals and things like that. Um, But then often you have people who on paper have a lot of knowledge and are experts and they go to communities and they try to affect change and, or they come to a school and try to change a school or turn it around. And if you just ask the students about their own community and their own school and like what they see, um, you end up getting solutions that are more durable. So, and that could look like, you know, if you add a school, if you have a committee for something, like for example, a lot of independent schools are now looking at gender neutral dormitory options uh, mm-hmm. for non-binary and trans students and their allies. And um, I think that if a school has a committee that's looking to create one of those, it should definitely have students on it. Um, right. but I, I've heard of a couple of schools that have faculty committees and there aren't students on them. And I'm like, but if the, like, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, so I think yeah. we fail students when we don't include them in the process and we don't listen to them and we don't think that they have anything to offer because they're students.
0: Right. Um, right. which is, it's so, it's so easy to reinforce that just by like our status as educator and them as students. And sometimes mm-hmm. we have to we have to reinforce like that dynamic um, in order to be effective educators. But the question is, how do you do that without making them feel like they don't have a voice or making them feel like their knowledge and their experiences aren't valid or aren't as valid as our knowledge experiences?
1: Yeah. And I think too, like if you empower youth, sometimes you still have to step in as the adult and say, no, we're not doing that. Or that's not going to be safe. Or I know you want to do this, but we need to do we need to do this other thing first. Like I think yeah. there are moments where you need to step in, but and and balancing like when to step in and when to step out or to or to just like not step in is hard and worth and worth navigating. But at, but you still have to be open to partnering with youth first, yeah. which is which not a lot of people. I don't I don't think a lot of teachers really think about that. Um, and in my class, we talked a lot about like what does the nature of that partnership look like. But we're, but everyone in the class was still open to partnering with youth. And I think a lot of people don't think about students in that way that they're worth partnering with. Um, Right. But they totally are.
0: Yeah. They're awesome.
1: Yeah. They really, yeah.
0: That's why we work with them.
1: (laughs) I hang out. Yeah. With teenagers more than, uh, people my own age. So, But but there's something really, they're so like energetic and they, they bring so much to the table. It's, it's super cool working with adolescents all the time.
0: Yeah. I agree. Um, so going back to what I was going to ask you earlier, I'm I'm curious about like in your experiences as someone who, who found themselves serving this role as like the go-to person on issues of like gender and sexuality and, and queerness and, and stuff like that. And in your experiences at, at Dartmouth and Harvard, I'm curious about like what you feel is kind of like the the current need or like what is like the current step that's needed to really... Empower students in these areas. Um, you know, like we have a lot more awareness as it pertains to these issues. I think, but I'm just curious about what you feel are like concrete sort of ways in which our students need to be empowered or or feel like they're being seen or heard in this in this area.
1: I think. This, this topic is interesting because I think in a lot of ways, the students are way ahead of the adults in most mm-hmm. school communities. Like, uh, st- like students might be fine with someone identifying as non-binary and using different pronouns. And then the adults are the ones who are like, whoa, whoa, yeah. what, what does yeah. that mean? Um, and why, you know? And so I think first would be faculty development around lgbtq issues like a lot of faculty um might not I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people wouldn't know what the lgbtqia acronym like what all those letters mean yeah and that you know it's a combination of gender identities sexualities and also biological conditions like intersex as the i um i even i mean this past year talked with people, um, about, about that and how we often conflate gender and sexuality. And really, I think just getting a foundation of like vocabulary and concepts is really important so that the adults can then guide student conversations when they, when they pop up or, um, participate, right. If the students are talking about it and the adults want to participate and learn from the students, um, being open and having a, a foundation of vocabulary and concepts, I think is, is going to be really important. Um, and that way, too, like one, one thing, um, that happened at Harvard this past year was, uh, during orientation, we had to introduce ourselves with our pronouns. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I had ever had sort of structurally in a, in a number of meetings where I was asked to, to identify you know, with my pronouns, um, in, in a room of like people that I had never met before, um, which, which was interesting. And, um, so I could see people thinking, oh, when I go back to my schools, I'm going to do that. (laughs) But I think when you're, when you're going into a middle school or into a high school on the, like on the first day of school, I'm not planning on asking my students to identify with their pronouns because some kids will have never thought about that before, Because uh, they're cisgender, meaning that the gender that they their gender identity matches the one that they were assigned at birth, mm-hmm. and so they're going to be like, "Why is she asking us this?" Right. Um, and then if there's a student who might be struggling with their gender identity, they don't know me. They might yeah. not feel comfortable with the other people in the room saying what that is, right? And then, um, and then, or or a kid might misgender themselves, and so that they don't out, you know, they don't out themselves on the first day. So I think. Again, like adults need to be trained in in, in these things, um, yeah. and then I think because the students are getting there, and then but having the adults realize that they can learn a lot from their students, and um, and then also uh, just that this this stuff is changing all the time, um, and they need to have some some vocabularies of groundwork is really important. The other thing is I've heard faculty say, um, well, why are we talking about this? It, we don't even have a trans student yet or right. why are we talking about this? This only really is for like 3% of the school. Right. And so why are we spending so much time faculty meetings, thinking about creating a whole new dorm, which is going to yeah. take resources like, like kind of why, like this doesn't seem like it's a bang for your buck kind of thing. But when you're talking about gender and sexuality, everyone at the school has a gender. Everyone at the school has a sexuality and, right. Um, and so it's really like talking about those issues are for everyone, because Mm -hmm. even if you don't have a trans student yet, you are going to have people who feel confined by the norms that are attached to their gender identity. So you might have a football player who doesn't try out for the musical because he doesn't want to, you know, overstep and maybe get made fun of. Right. You have, um, you know, uh, a a girl who doesn't want to cut her hair because, of she's afraid of like how that might affect the way that she's perceived or right. And so people, a lot of people think specifically adults have said, Oh, you know, why, why are we doing this? And they think about helping LGBTQ students as helping like literally only them. But when you talk about gender and sexuality, you're helping everyone because you're helping to rethink and reestablish norms around those things, which are totally socially constructed. And so if you can, reconstruct or deconstruct some of the harmful things that's really good for everybody not just for those marginalized students
0: yeah i went to a conference uh this past year on issues of gender and sexuality and i was um we got this binder that was filled with like quotes on some of these issues like from educators and parents and stuff like that and there was a a quote from a an administrator at, at some school and she pretty much said like, no. what are we waiting for? Are we are we waiting for the issue to come up? Like, are we waiting for certain people to like be in the room? And I was really struck by that. And I, I use that when I did like a presentation at a professional development day about some of these, some of these Mm -hmm. issues, and essentially why it's important that we have literacy around these issues. And um, I, I think about it in terms of like, we don't know like who's in the room like by Mm -hmm. definition of a lot of these things because people don't feel comfortable with like with outing themselves or talking about these issues and we are also preparing our students to be in other rooms with other people and even if they are not in a classroom with someone who identifies in one of these ways like they they will be at some point Mm -hmm. um so it's and it's also a matter of like not even viewing it as like something that is currently an issue because I, I hear that come up like oh this isn't clearly an issue so why are we talking about it like even yeah. thinking about it like as a thing that is an issue or isn't an issue <laughs> is like kind of it kind of stigmatizes it in this weird way and kind of makes like an event out of it like we need to prepare for like when this student like marches in like yeah that's just not how it's going to happen and it doesn't help to view it that way
1: yeah i agree especially at um like in the environments where we teach where students are living in community and, and the students are coming from all over the world, right? We have international yeah. students, we have students from across the U.S. And so you have a blend of religions, you have a blend of cultural beliefs, you have a blend of experiences, a blend of socio socioeconomic backgrounds. Like, And so it's it's hugely important to... Address, you know, to to address cultural and social dynamics and, yeah. um, and identities, because in order for all of us to get along and to create a community that's truly inclusive, and as opposed to like just diverse, right? Our schools right. are diverse, but are they inclusive? Right? That's right. A, that's a different question. And so, um, yeah, instead of having it be reactive. To a problem or an issue, as you said, uh, if we're proactive and really just try to educate everyone on different kinds of identities and experiences, so that um, our students are better prepared to not only understand themselves but also other people um, right. at the school and beyond. Like that's really important. Yeah. Um, and I think a, I think something that a lot of our schools they prioritize the academic and the college process, but I think that the human side of what we do. Is is just as important, if not more.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's hugely important. Um, Okay, so we're moving into the into the final stages here. So I'm I'm curious about if there's any sort of um, if there's a piece of advice or something that you currently find yourself really thinking about, like especially as you go into a new um, a new position at a new school. If there's a piece of advice that you've heard in your time as an educator or something that has really stuck with you um, or something that you would like pass on to some, someone else? I realize that's a very sort of like vague and broad question, but yeah, just like if it's something you're kind of mulling over that you remind yourself in terms of, you know, how you can be a more effective educator or, or serve your students better.
1: I think saying no is really important, um, <laughs> which sounds weird to say. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I totally
0: get what you're saying, but yeah, what do you mean by that?
1: when when i was i mean even in in college and then definitely as a teaching fellow i would generally say yes to everything um and that resulted in me being stretched too thin and yeah. at different times feeling really overwhelmed and really i i think i thrived on that for a while and then and i and i think a lot of ways we we lift up people who are doers and just keep doing and um I tried to make it look easy you know the metaphor of like a duck so the duck is like gliding effortlessly along the surface but underneath the surface it's paddling like hell right and I definitely was a duck in a lot of ways and then I ended up having different moments of burnout and exhaustion and then moments where I really wanted to say yes and I like couldn't because I was sick or yeah I double booked myself and and I realized that in order for me to be the best educator and to really be able to be there for my students in the classroom, to be there for my athletes and to be there for the kids in my dorm and for the random student who, you know, needed a conversation or whatever, I needed to be able to say no to certain things and mm-hmm. do some self-care stuff uh, and make sure that I was doing things for me so that I was ready to, to give of myself when people yeah. needed it or when I wanted to. Um, and so if a student, you know, that looks like if, if if a student wants to meet with me in the evening to talk about a paper and I'm not on duty that night and I'm on duty the next night, I'll say, you know, no, come yeah. by when I'm on duty. And then even if I didn't have plans for the night, you know, that 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 night, I it didn't matter, right? right? I was I was saying no, come by when I'm on duty, and then I could go see my sister for dinner. I could get in an extra workout or a long bike ride i could read for fun i could invite a colleague over for dinner um
0: or just do nothing
1: yeah exactly or do nothing (laughs) and listen listen to a great podcast like this one right Um, right (laughs) so i think i think being able to say no and to be okay with that and to realize that i needed to do certain things for me i write letters i write at least a letter every week i've done that since i left college so sometimes that looks like just sitting down and writing a letter um I needed to be able to do that, and I think I think so often educators get into into education because they want to serve and they want to give and they want to help and they 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 want to do like all these things for other people, and I think we often forget to do things for ourselves in that work, um, and so it's really important to be able to say no to make sure that when you say yes you're you feel really good about saying yes, and you know that when you say yes you're going to be able to do um, the quality job that, that you want. Um, cause I really started getting bothered by saying yes and kind of doing things halfway or like just not a hundred percent. Cause I just, I was doing too much. Um, so I think again, saying no is, is really important for like durability in yeah. the life of education. Cause I, I want to be an educator forever. I don't want to be an educator for five more years and then say, Oh my God, I can't do this anymore. Cause it's too much. So Yeah. I think for a lot of reasons you need to be able to say no <laughs> so so that you can say yes.
0: And I'm sure you're probably thinking about that as you as you do transition to this new position because in your first year at a new school like you want to say yes to everything and you want to like you know you want to like bring your best self to your new job and you want to sh- demonstrate to people that you're reliable and that you can be trusted with certain things and that you're going to mm-hmm. be the kind of teacher who's going to be proactive but in that quest like you can sometimes burn yourself out uh, at the time when you're already juggling so much like as someone who just finished like his first year like at a new school like i definitely had to had to learn like the importance of saying no in a way that i just hadn't ever really considered it before Mm -hmm. um okay so the last thing i'm gonna have you do is i have a, a little bit of a challenge for you if you are currently feeling up for a challenge yeah So what I'd like you to do to the best of your ability is essentially pitch yourself or capture yourself as an educator um, using whatever words or phrases or or whatever comes to mind in 30 seconds.
1: Okay. Okay. I've been nervous about this because I heard you do it on <laughs> on other episodes. So, I'll, yeah, right. here, here we
0: go. Well, you're at a little bit of an advantage then. That's this is the reward for listening <laughs> to the podcast ahead of time is you you know what's uh, you know what's coming. Yeah. Um Awesome. So I'm gonna throw 30 seconds on the clock. Do you have any questions going into this? I don't think get so. It, it so it's just with?
1: like how I try to be in the classroom or like how I approach education.
0: Yeah, pretty much all of it. Yeah, okay. anything is is totally fair game. Okay. Okay. Awesome. All right. So 30 seconds around the clock and I'm going to count down in three, two, one, go. All
1: right. I, I definitely try to, um, make learning fun and create learning experiences for, for my students. Um, and to make learning or whatever we're doing in class relevant to their own lives. Um, I definitely try to let my students be their Ten most seconds. authentic selves. Um, and to empower them yeah perfect
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you have uh, five seconds left so that wasn't that wasn't so bad at all Ugh. um now for the second round what i'd like you to do is do the exact same thing but in 10 seconds yeah in 10 seconds okay all right so 10 seconds around the clock i'll start you off in three two one go
1: Definitely try to make learning fun for my students and to let them be their um, authentic selves and learn about themselves through the course of learning. Um, And yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Um, Okay. Now what I'd like you to do is just capture your essence as an educator using one single word.
1: Yeah, I thought about this too. And I think I'm going to have to to echo what Sarah said and say authenticity. Um, That's great. Yeah. I think, I think with like what we've talked about so far is like my willingness to be my authentic self in the classroom. I, I I would hope that my students would say that in the classroom, outside of the classroom, I'm the same, that they don't really see me sort of change who I am based on the environment that I'm in. Or even if I'm with colleagues or whatever, I definitely try to treat my students as, young adults and people who are capable of having really hard conversations and um, are people with whom I can be honest. And I would hope that when they engage in the classroom too, and even outside of it, that they can be their authentic selves from one space to the next and no matter who they're with, whether it's their friend group or kids who they don't know or other adults. Um, And I, I definitely try to have authenticity sort of define my own interactions and then my hope is that they feel like they can do the same.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it goes such a long way in terms of like making yourself feel more comfortable in the classroom, but also like creating an environment where your students can feel that they can be their authentic selves. So that definitely checks out. And um, as great as Sarah Koppelkamp is, she does not have a trademark on it. So you're more than welcome (laughs) to to use that uh, as yours as well. (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much, Courtney. I really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk with me. It's been awesome getting to know you in like a different... Capacity. Um, you mentioned that you that we met at, at ASP, and we mm-hmm. actually we worked together at ASP. But also, um, you were like you were an assistant director when I was a student, <laughs> and I remember that my first interaction with you was actually um, I don't know okay. if I shared it with you or not. No. But my first interaction with you was <laughs> um, after the um, fun run. Fun run. Oh yeah. That, yeah. After the fun run, um, I was with a group of teenage boys, and it was really hot as it tends to get during the yep. during the summer in New Hampshire and we had just finished the fun run which is like a run for charity and um I a bunch of us like took off our shirts because it was really hot and (laughs) you as the assistant director it was your responsibility to yell at us and tell us to put our shirts back on yeah um so that was my first ever interaction with you um but (laughs) thankfully ever since then our interactions have been a much more um (laughs) more amiable um
1: that's really funny I don't remember doing that but yeah I I would have had to do that as the as the AD yeah
0: yeah so but (laughs) one of the great things about being involved with ASP to the extent that I have been involved with as like a student as an intern is I get to meet wonderful people and get to know them like as you know in many different capacities so it's been great knowing you in that capacity but also knowing you as an educator and as a colleague and and as a friend so um i really appreciate you sharing your wonderful thoughts and insights and experiences about education and uh yeah
1: thanks for having me uh this was a lot of fun and i'm glad that you're doing podcasts i think that's really important
0: awesome thank you thank you all right take care courtney you too john Thank you once more to Courtney for speaking with me. This podcast was created and hosted by me, John LeMay. Our associate producer is Emily Moeller. Our cover art is by Katie Cooper. And our theme music is You Need a Visa by Really From. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join me next week for another episode featuring another teacher and another story.